Welcome to week 10 of Broken Branches Ministry STEM Discipleship Program podcast. I am Karen Ayers, your host. Marshall and I are honored and humbled to deliver this innovative way of teaching God's word and building disciples. STEM Discipleship Program is dedicated to helping you develop an intimate relationship with God that urges you to grow in your obedience and submission to Christ. The goal of our walk with Christ is as we walk with him, we become more like him. So go ahead, pull out your STEM Discipleship Program workbook, grab a pen, and let's dig into this week's lesson. For the last few weeks, we've been studying the importance of yielding our will to the will of God and coming to a deeper understanding of what that really means. So far in this journey, you've been able to have a better understanding of the Trinity of God and the individual yet unified responsibilities of each. There are three distinct natures and function, but yet they are one God. I used the analogy before on me being Karen, who is the mother, the wife, and the therapist. All three parts are me functioning differently, yet they're all me. As you have come to have a clear depiction of who God is, you also have increased your understanding of what you mean to God. God loves you. It is hard at times to really wrap our minds around the extent of God's love because mere humans are incapable of loving like God does. It's hard to understand and to grasp, but yet it is still true. God loves you and he sacrificed his son for you, knowing you would sin and mess up. Not only did he save us from ourselves and the sin that so easily besets us, as Hebrews 12 and 1 tells us, he saved us from his wrath, per Romans 5 and 9. We have learned the crucial role that communication with God or prayer plays in developing a close relationship with God. We have expounded on our understanding that we were created for God's glory and not that God was created for our glory. We now have a keen understanding of what the scriptures say about God being a jealous God and the role that reverence and honor should play with our relationship with God. We have discussed the role the enemy plays in his attempts to attack our souls our minds, our wills, and our emotions in an effort to keep us away from the truth of God's word and the rest that is found in having an intimate relationship with God. This week, we will dig into our victory. Let's take a look at 1 John 5 verses 1 through 5 and see what the word of God says about victory of the believer. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ born of God and everyone who loves the father loves his child as well. Verse two, this is how we know that we love the children of God by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, his love is for God. This is love for God to keep his commands and his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. 
So to overcome the world is to gain victory over its sinful pattern of life, which is another way of describing obedience to God. Such obedience is not impossible for the believer because he has been born again and the Holy Spirit dwells with him and gives him strength. John speaks here in these passages of two aspects of victory. The initial victory of turning in faith from the world to God as referenced in verse 4 when it says has overcome. Then it speaks of a continuing aspect of day-by-day victory of Christian living as it says overcomes the world. This denotes an ongoing state of victory. So what then is victory? According to Webster's Dictionary, victory is an act of defeating an enemy or an opponent in a battle, a game, or other competition. Victory means to conquest or to triumph, to have success, to win. Don't get it confused. Satan is our enemy. He is against us. He is our adversary, our opponent. He is our rival. When I look at this definition of victory, I see rather clearly the role of the enemy in our lives and the stance that we must take to maintain the victory that Jesus won on the cross. In order to have victory or success over a thing, we must first understand that there is a battle that we're in. When in any battle, it is important for the leaders to study their opponent before rushing into battle. We just finished talking about our emotions last week and the importance of mastering them. Let's say if you found out someone has some sort of beef with you, they're trying to, you know, take you down and they're ready to attack. What would you do first? What would be your first reaction? Maybe you will feel some kind of way in your body first. Your palms will begin to sweat. Your heart's beating really fast as if it's about to jump out your chest or you may get hot. Then what happens is our emotions kick in and you may experience fear, anger, sadness, Um, depression may creep in and you may find yourself fighting a familiar battle again. We mustn't react. Armies across this world prepare for battle ahead of time. They run drills and exercises continuously in preparation for the unseen threats and the foreseen wars that must be fought. This is the same strategy that that us as believers must take when preparing to fight our enemy, Satan. The difference between us and the world is that we already know that the battle that we fight has already been won. We already know that we win in the end. I remember years ago, I was struggling with depression and with the stresses that come with being a single mother uh, with limited support. I was just tired, man. I was just mentally, physically, and spiritually worn out. I was tired of praying. I was tired of keeping a smile on my face in front of others and fatigued in my body by having the appearance that all the prayers I had been praying were already answered. You know, one day I cried out to God one night on my knees and and I said to him, I'm done. You have to handle all of this. I'm not going to do this anymore. 
And I heard the voice of the Lord say, good. Now I can guide your life the way I see fit. If the enemy can get you to go back to self-effort, he wins. And when we try to do things on our own, we'll always lose because we will be worn out. What we have to do is to stand in the belief that Jesus obtained everything we need on the cross. Not only do we have to understand who our enemy is, we have to have a keen revelation of who you're in battle with and his commitment to you. So we have to understand Satan, but we also have to understand God and his commitment to us in battle. And once you understand that the fight is fixed and you win in the end, you will fight differently. Let's say, for instance, if the Atlanta Falcons, you know, knew at the end of the game that they would win. How would they play their game? Instead of getting frustrated or lose their heads when plays don't go as planned and instead of yards being gained, they find themselves over and over again behind the line of scrimmage and losing yardage. They will be level-headed and run the plays as practice because no matter how positive or negative a possession looks, they still win at the end. This is the attitude I have adapted to my life when I truly have come into the full knowledge and understanding as to who God is and who I am to God. You win at the end as a believer. The only thing you must do is believe that and live your life in this truth. So what then must we believe specifically as Christians? First, as a believer, we must believe that the Bible is God's word. Second Timothy verse chapter three, verses 15 and 17, 15 through 17 in the New Living Translation puts it this way. You have been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood, and they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Jesus, Christ Jesus. Verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. Verse 17, God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. So as a believer, we must believe that the word of God is an instrument that is used to teach us, to correct us, to prepare and equip believers. And it is the inspired word of God. Secondly, as believers, we must believe that God is three in one. There's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All God, all powerful, and each part is fully God. 1 John chapter 5, verse 7 in the King James Version says, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. The third thing, as a believer, you must believe that Jesus is the Son of God. 
after Jesus was being baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist, there are accounts in both Mark 1 verse 11 and Matthew 3 and um, verse 17 that a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am pleased, who I'm well pleased. So as a believer, we must believe that Jesus is the son of God. The fourth thing that we as believers should um, believe is by faith that Jesus died on the cross as a blood offering. He was the sacrifice and the atonement for the sins for all mankind. And he rose from the dead. Let's take a moment to look at Romans chapter 5 and look at what Jesus' death accomplished for believers. And we're going to start at verse 1. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, We have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand. And we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. Verse 3, we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. Verse 5, and this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. Verse 8, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made in God's sight by the blood of Christ, since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. Verse 10, for since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, sinners are his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. Mm. Verse 11, so now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends for God. So it's important as a believer that we have to believe by faith that Jesus died on that cross and that blood offering that he was given. He was the sacrifice. He atoned for our sins and put us back in right standing with God. As a believer, we must believe that that blood that Jesus shed on that cross was shed once and for all. One time. We have to believe that salvation through the blood of Jesus is a gift. Grace, the unmerited favor that believers are granted once they receive Christ as their Lord and Savior is free. It does not have to be earned. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9 says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Verse 9, salvation 
is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. As a believer, you must believe that the blood that Jesus shed on that cross was shed. Like I said, once and for all. For the known sins that have been committed by mankind up until his death. As well as the sins that were yet to to be committed by you and I. We must believe by faith that every sickness, every disease, every foul word, every foul deed, every embarrassing moment, every dumb move we've made, every irresponsible behavior we've encountered, and every heinous act was in that cup that Jesus wanted to pass from him when he prayed to God at Gethsemane. He took it all, leaving nothing for you to carry. It's finished. Part of the spiritual battle that goes on in our mind and our emotions and our flesh is about us taking back things that were nailed to the cross and trying to handle them ourselves. Victory for all believers was accomplished on that cross. The foundation to walking in victory as believers is to simply believe. We are called believers of Christ Jesus because our entire relationship is built on having faith and believing. The fifth thing as a believer we must believe is that we must believe by faith that the Holy Spirit lives in us and is our indwelled artillery used to fight any attack we may encounter and that we cannot fight our battles on our own. I love the way Romans chapter 8 verses 1 through 11 and and just indulge with me for a moment to read this from the Message Bible. And it highlights this point about us not being able to do things on our own. And it starts off in verse 1, and this is Romans chapter 8, by saying, With the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, that faithful dilemma is resolved. Those who enter into Christ's being here for us no longer have to live under a continuous, low-lying black cloud. A new power is in operation. The spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, has magnificently cleared the air, freeing you from a faded lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. Verse 3. God went for the jugular when he said his son, his own son. He didn't deal with the problem as something remote or unimportant. In his son, Jesus, he personally took on the human condition. He entered the disordered mess of struggling humanity in order to set it right once and for all, once and for all. The law code, weakened as it always was by fractured human nature, could never have done that. The law always ended up being used as a band-aid on sin instead of a deep healing of it. Mm. Let me say that again. The law always ended up being a covering like a band-aid on sin instead of a deep healing of it. And now what the law code asked for, but we couldn't deliver is accomplished as we instead of redoubling our own efforts, simply embrace what the Spirit is doing in us. Can you embrace 
what the spirit of the God is doing in, in you. Verse five, those who think that they can do it on their own end up obsessed with measuring their own moral muscle, but never get around to exercising it in real life. Those who trust God's action in them find that God's spirit is in them living and breathing God. Obsession with self in these matters is a dead end. Attention to God leads us out into the open, into a spacious, free life. Focusing on the self is the opposite of focusing on God. Anyone completely absorbed in self ignores God. And they end up thinking more about self than God. That person ignores who God is and what he is doing. And God isn't pleased at being ignored. Verse 9. But if God himself has taken up residence in your life, you can hardly be thinking more of yourself than of him. Anyone, of course, who has not welcomed this invisible but clearly pleasant God, the Spirit of Christ, won't know what we're talking about. But for you who welcomed him and whom he dwells, even though you still experience all the limitations of sin, you yourself experience life on God's terms. It stands to reason, doesn't it? That if the alive and present God who raised Jesus from the dead moves into your life, he'll do the same thing in you that he did in Jesus, bringing you alive to himself. When God lives and breathes in you, and he does, as surely as he did in Jesus, you are delivered from the dead life. With his spirit living in you, your body will be as alive as Christ. Oh, that's some good stuff. That is some good stuff. We cannot do it on our own. When we receive Christ as our Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit came in and resides in us to give us all the help that we need to handle those things that we can't do on our own. So in understanding our opponent, it's going to be crucial that his tactics are uncovered. Now, we've already discussed in previous weeks that the enemy will use our minds, our flesh, our emotions as an entryway of depositing doubt and unbelief in our minds. We see this in 2 Corinthians 4 and 4 and the living, the new living translation reads like this. Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. In order to better understand our opponent, let's continue to take a look at how he operates. You can't underestimate the intelligence, the patience, and the craftiness of Satan. Satan will attempt to put doubt in your minds. He'll not just your mind, but all the minds of believers. He doesn't care about, he leaves the unbelievers alone, but this is what he does to the believers. And this began in the Garden of Eden when Satan distorted truth and caused Eve to momentarily question what she knew to be true. We all know where the consequences of Eve's doubting God's truth landed us, right? Eve went wrong by entertaining foolish talk. She listened to him. 
The word of God tells us that part of our strategy in fighting a war that is fought in the spiritual realm is to resist the devil and he will flee. We see that in James chapter four, verse seven. However, if we entertain Satan and we listen to him, we give him room to twist God's word, to bring forth confusion and to lead us in a path that establishes a root of a belief pattern that is contrary to the word of God. The next thing we know, this root has turned into a full-blown stronghold. Turn to page 120 of your STEM Discipleship Program workbook and take some notes on strongholds. So strongholds are thought processes, addictions, habits, or ideas that are tools used by Satan to establish residency in your life. It is an advantage point that he feels he is he has in your life. Strongholds are spiritual ammunition that Satan and his army uses to fight believers. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 3 through 4 explains our battleground. It says we are human But we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. So the word of God, we use God's weapons, not the world's weapons, to knock down these strongholds that the enemy tries to place in our lives. And there are different categories of strongholds that a believer may experience. Let's talk first about the personal strongholds. These are areas in your life that are seemingly always under the attack of the enemy. Let me throw out some examples and make note of areas that Satan may have a stronghold on you. Bitterness lust, anxiety, pride, greed, improper speech, short-temperedness, unforgiveness, hatred. And then we have strongholds that may be culturally centered around thoughts and ideas that are embraced in the world. We call these strongholds ideological strongholds. Some examples of this would be Um, To say that it's okay, to be okay with uh, homosexuality, pornography, because it is permissible in the world. Our scripture memory verses for week seven and eight reminded us, uh, Romans 12, one and two, it reminded us to not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Conforming to the patterns of this world is a trick that the enemy uses by desensitizing us to the things that God is against. Paul warns us against allowing Satan to get a foothold on us in Ephesians 4, 27. Ephesians 4, verse 27. Unchecked footholds will turn into strongholds if not defeated by spiritual weapons. That's noteworthy. Unchecked footholds will turn into strongholds if not defeated by spiritual weapons. 
And Paul warns us again against allowing Satan to get a foothold, a little grasp on us, something he can use against us. And as believers, we must believe by faith that using God's weapons are better than any man-made tactics to fight the spiritual battles we will find ourselves in. So there is undoubtedly spiritual warfare that is going on. Spiritual warfare is where there is a conflict between the things of God and the things of Satan, where you win in the end if you just don't give up. Remember the football game analogy I mentioned earlier? Why give up in a battle or a tough assignment when you already know you will rise victoriously at the end? This is the area that the enemy works in. He tries to get us to see truth as a lie and doubt the word of God. Another way that Satan will try to operate in spiritual warfare is offering something that is seemingly better than what you have right now. In Matthew 4, verses 8 and 9, Satan was tempting Jesus by offering to give him all of the kingdoms of the world if Jesus would worship him. How would this look for the believer today? What if you saw something in a store that you really liked and you wanted it and trying to keep up with the Joneses and got some Pradas and some Chanel bags and all this kind of stuff. And But you know that the money you you have right now, you have it put aside to pay for your, pay your tithes, pay your bills and put some in savings because you have a goal that you're working towards. But Satan may drop suggestions in your spirit that may sound something like this. You know, girl, you work hard, man, you know, you deserve it. You need to go on and get that drop top right now. Go ahead, buy it. Bills will always be there. You can catch up on your ties next time. I know you want it. Satan will use our desires of the moment to cause us future pain, self-contempt, and guilt. Let's look at some scripture and see what other tactics the enemy may use in spiritual warfare. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 9 through 11. It says, another reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Verse 10, anyone who, anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. In order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not aware of his schemes, the enemy are uncovered. So right here, what it's saying, tempting us to harbor unforgiveness in our heart is a tactic of the enemy. He's like, don't have any unforgiveness. Because look, Satan is going to use that. We're not aware of all the schemes that he may use, but he could use that. So we want to be aware that harboring unforgiveness in our hearts could be something that the enemy can use to get a foothold on our lives that can possibly turn into a stronghold. Flip over now to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 3 through 5. And it says this, The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs, and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband, and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. 
Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so that you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. Afterward, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Satan will use sex or the lack thereof between a husband and a wife as a way to tempt the individuals to go outside of marriage or some other form of ungodly behavior to deposit guilt and shame because we may lack self-control. And if you remember last week, um, week nine, we were talking about the fruit of the spirit. And when there's an act of the flesh, which in this instance, it may be infidelity that um, they're referring to. There may be an act of the flesh, but we can always counteract the act of the flesh by a fruit of the spirit. So in this case, we're being urged to make sure that we're taking care of each other as a husband and wife so that the enemy cannot use a crack to get in to cause something that will displease God to enter into that marriage due to lack of self-control. Now, this last way that I want to talk about points to a part of the foundation of why we established um, this discipleship program. Still was designed to assist believers in putting God at the center of their lives and learning to discern the voice of the Holy Spirit for themselves so that they cannot be blown here from here and there based on the words they hear in pulpits or on the streets. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. Let's look at this a little bit closer. It says, Now, Dear brothers and sisters, let us clarify some things about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and how we will be gathered to meet him. Verse 2. Don't be so easily shaken or alarmed by those who say that the day of the Lord has already begun. Don't believe them. Even if they claim to have had a spiritual vision, a revelation, or a letter supposedly from us. Don't be fooled by what they say, for the day will not come until there is a great rebellion against God and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the one who brings destruction. Verse 4, he will exalt himself and defy everything that people call God and every object of worship. He will even sit in the temple of God claiming that he himself is God. Don't you remember that I told you about this all. Don't you remember that I told you about all this when I was with you? Verse six, and you know what is holding him back for he can be revealed only when his time comes. For the lawlessness is already at work secretly and it will remain secret until the one who is holding it back steps out of the way. Verse 8, then the man of lawlessness will be revealed, but the Lord Jesus will slay him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him by the splendor of his coming. This man will come to do the work of Satan with counterfeit power and signs and miracle. 
He will use every kind of evil deception to fool those on their way to destruction because they refuse to love and accept the truth that would save them. Verse 11. So God will cause them to be greatly deceived and they will believe the lies. Then they will be condemned for rejoice for enjoying evil rather than believing the truth. If I cannot express more diligently for you all today. Satan is after your belief system. Victory is found in this belief system. Even the most seasoned believer is subject to spiritual warfare. The moment you start believing you are incapable of such behaviors as coveting or entertaining lustful thoughts, Satan will set in motion a surprise attack in areas where you feel that Satan does not have access. Turn to page 122 through 124 and let's take a look at, let's kind of put the last nine weeks together by uncovering practical ways that we can maintain the victory that Jesus obtained on the cross for us all. Let's look at our spiritual armor and uncover how each piece can help us when we are in a spiritual battle. But first remember that each battle is won in prayer. Then you can attack the enemy and claim the victory that God has already won. Let's first start by dissecting Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20 for some insight. A final word, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. It's verse 10, Ephesians 6. This scripture implies that human effort is inadequate, but God's power is invincible. Verse 11. It tells us to put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in heavenly places. Verses 11 and 12 cautions us against lashing out against human opponents as though they were the real enemy. And also against assuming that the battle can be fought using merely human resources. Verse 13. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so that you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will still be standing firm. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. Now, this doesn't depict a massive invasion, but it depicts individual soldiers with standing assault. The belt of truth holds the other armor in place. When we think of truth, we think of integrity. This is saying as we are standing in prayer, pray with the understanding of the truth of who God is and who you are to him. Here is where we master our emotions so that we can't be deceived by the enemy when we are in spiritual battle. Our emotions may keep us from holding to the truth. Be reminded as you stand in prayer during the spiritual battle of James 
chapter 4, verse 3, which says, And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. Be careful of your motives. Motives can be connected to emotions. Verse 15, for shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. Gospel shoes of peace indicates that we are prepared. You don't leave the house until you have your shoes on. You can be fully dressed, but not prepared to experience life outside of your home without shoes. What are we preparing for? We're preparing for battle and for sharing the good news. This is what you have been doing thus far in a study. You've been strengthening your spiritual man in preparation for battles that will come and people for which you will share the good news of Jesus Christ. So those gospel shoes keeps us ready. We're prepared. It's just like those drills that I was talking about that the armies um, do all the time. They have all these drills in preparation for the battle. So when the battle comes, they're ready. They don't have to get ready. Second Timothy 4 tells us to be prepared in season and out of season. Let's look at going to verse 16. It says, in addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. This tells us that Weapons will form, but our faith will stop them from prospering. First mm. John 5 and 4 says this, For every child of God defeats the evil, this evil world, and we achieve this victory through our faith. Victory is won through our faith. Remember Mark 11 verse 24? This is a good time to be reminded of the promises it, it makes. It says, I tell you, You can pray for anything. And if you believe that you've received it, it will be yours. Faith and belief go hand in hand and are critical components of the artillery we use to fight spiritual battles and win. Let's look at verse 17 of Ephesians 6. It says, put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Helmets cover our heads, our minds our thinkers. We fight spiritual battles by putting on an understanding that we are saved by the grace of God. And as a result of that, we are new creations who are now submitting to the mind of Christ and not allowing our own thoughts to rule us. Then we must pick up our sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and let it remind us that it is a weapon. Hebrews 4 chapter, I mean, Hebrews chapter four, verse 12 tells us, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. And this is how it reads in the New Living Translation. Pray on the basis of God's word and his truths and use it as a weapon in spiritual battles. Verse 18 says, pray in a spirit at all times and on all and on every occasion. Stay alert 
and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. Praying in the Spirit is a type of prayer that may take more than a few minutes. It's a prayer that we're connecting in, in spirit and in truth with, the, with God and the Holy Spirit and our, holy, and our heavenly language. Some things we may have to press in prayer for extended periods of time. The word said that some things only come by fasting and prayer. So I want to encourage you to set some time aside for intentional battle through prayer where you are pressing in, interceding for the body of Christ and for this world. It is a privilege to be a soldier in God's army. So be prepared. Stand in faith. Stay alert. Be on the watch. Look for the enemy's attack. Look for the schemes of the of Satan. Don't just let him have a surprise attack on you. Be looking for him. Be watchful for him. Be prepared. Stand in faith and believe. Trust God. Take on the mind of Christ and play, pray for all things. This is how you resist the devil and he will flee. I pray that this lesson has enlarged your understanding of the battle that you're in as a Christian and even more so illuminated the fact that you are already victorious. Jesus died on the cross for us and his resurrection sealed our victory. Just believe it. Just believe it. The scriptures that you will be studying this week and meditating on to further dive into an understanding of this victory is Matthew chapter 12 verses 43 through 45, 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 22, Psalm 34 verse 19, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 22, also Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 23, and finally Jeremiah chapter 33 verse 3 let's pray my god we thank you we thank you lord god that when jesus died on that cross for our sins his blood was the sacrifice the atonement the offering lord god the blood sacrifice that atoned for our sins lord god Everything that we could do, will do, may, may be thinking to do is, has been covered on that cross. And we thank you for that, Lord God. I pray in the name of Jesus, Lord, that everyone that's listening to this gets a better understanding that there's nothing else that they have to do to earn the grace that was given when Jesus said it's finished on the cross. Let us have a fresh and understanding that the battle is already won. That we just have to go through the plays. We just have to go through the innings. We just have to go through the rounds of the fight. But at the end, we still win. We may get a little bruised. We may get scratched up. We may get put back some. We may be at the finish line and get pushed back to... to um, the 50-yard line, Lord. But Father, we know 
that regardless of what the fight looks like, that the battle is won, that we're victorious, Lord God. So it's my prayer that each person that's listening to this has a fresh understanding of that, Lord God. Increase their faith, increase their belief, because those are the keys to them winning any battle that the enemy would set up against them, Lord. So, Father, we love you. We thank you. We honor you. We bless you. We exalt you for being God and Lord of our lives. And it's in your precious son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.